Good morning, everybody, in the church of Medina. To this day, I still want to say bath. I can still remember when we had our congregational times on the Sabbath day over at the town hall, ironically, not too far from where Jeffrey Dahmer got his start. This is, <laughs> right? Wow, you talk about being too close to history. I don't want to be that close to it. But I'll tell you what, um, is there anything more beautifully designed? So rightfully put into place in God's Sabbath day. I call it the forgotten holy day. It is the first holy day listed back in Leviticus. It is a Sabbath day. Then God goes on to list his annual holy days. And it's sad oftentimes we hear that when we, after the fall holy days, we go into winter, they say, we're without reminder of God's holy days. No, we're not. That continues in per perpetuity. But the thing I like most about it is I like to get out and be amongst people of like mind. We spend enough time the rest of the days of the week in the world hearing all these different perspectives, hearing all these things that we do in the news, oftentimes finding ourselves a little bit discouraged because it seems like all we hear is negativity, right? I'm about rioted out. I'm about terrorismed out. I'm creating some words up here and, and I guess I should predicate my sermon today with an apology. Brethren, I'm tired. I'm really tired, and I'm not complaining, but I'm just going to say this because if I misspeak today, please ask me to clarify. We've had a bunch of people quit at work or get sick, and I'm doing the job of like three people at work right now, two or three. Um, I've been in Columbus twice, no, three times in the last two months, so I love to travel, but I am tired. So if I misspeak, just please ask me to clarify here. But let me... Um, let me start out today by asking you a question. Let, let, me, let me pique your interest if I can. What's important to you in this life? What's important to you? I've got my own ideas, and I'm going to dwindle this down, and I'm going to get real specific here in just a little bit. But what's important? How about family? Is family important? I would say on, on the scale, if we were going to rank what's important to us, I think family would be probably at the top. We know God is important. I think he goes to the top. God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who strengthens us in our time of weakness. Those songs that we sang today are so, so beautiful. So beautiful. Lord, teach me that I may know. We are in a relearning process, all of us. We are relearning how to live our lives being directed by God when most of our lives have been spent in times where we were guided by the world, or should I say misguided. Bad ideas, wrong ideologies, theologies that were horrible if we had any at all. And now God has tapped us on the shoulder, and here we are together. We may never even sit down and have a meal together if God wouldn't have called us. I may never have a chance to speak to anybody here if God wouldn't have tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'm going to use you, and vice versa, right? We may have never even crossed paths, but here we find ourselves in the same room with like mind, with one purpose, with one direction, and we're all trying to attain this thing called the resurrection from the dead, hoping to put ourselves through the power and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all oh, those songs, those songs. Is there anything more grateful that we could be more grateful for than the blood of our Savior and his sufferings. Take some time and 
look at those suffering servant passages. What Christ has done for us to bring us to this point in our lives. So what's important to us? Maybe it's a cherished possession. Maybe it's a car. Whatever it is. But what about church? What's important for you in a church? Let's dwindle this down. Let's get really focused here. And really the reason I, I came up with this sermon because some of you may know our deacon in Columbus, Mr. Eugene Luca. I love that guy. I think he's going to turn 90 or just turn 90. I can't remember. But uh, he and I have a very good relationship. We, we joke around with each other a lot. And uh, A couple weeks ago during, after services, he said, did you read that article in the, in the international news by Bill Watson about this caliphate state? And I said, well, I haven't got to it yet. I, it's sitting on my counter, but I still have to read it. And he said, I know what motivates him, but you, I don't quite know about. So I guess I haven't spent a whole lot of time speaking about what motivates me. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time dedicating this time to, to informing you what motivates me. Because there are some things that are important to me I think we share in common. And if I'm not getting that out there, in other words, if I'm somewhat of a mystery, that's my fault. I just don't like talking about myself a whole lot. It's kind of uncomfortable for me. But the three major objectives today, what motivates me, uh, what is the most critical component to a church that we could have? Because there's a lot of ideas out there. There's a lot of, I don't know, what do you, what do you want to call them? Gimmicks, scams, uh, advertisements, things that gather people's attention to get people in the chairs. And keep, once you get them in the chairs, then you keep them in the chairs by fear, right? So you start all these kids of Paloozas, all these events, all these community outreach. Well, I'm not saying they're wrong or there's no place for them, but once you get them in, then you scare them. If you don't come here, you're, you're, you're just going to be damned to hell for the rest of for eternity because this is the one and only church. Sadly enough, our culture doesn't have an immunization for that because we have people in our culture that say the same thing. There are people out there that teach that if you don't belong to their specific organization, that you are no longer in the body of Christ, and that is, that is such heresy. It makes me want to stand up here like the exorcist and have my head spin, you know? I tell you, it just, just makes me sick, but what is the most critical component that we can have in a church? And perhaps last but not least, there is another question that I feel is so important, not just to this sermon, but every sermon that anybody gives. We ministers, if anybody, any ministers may listen to this tape uh, or this uh, DVD, we need to answer a question during every sermon. There's one critical answer that we need to answer for everybody. Why is this information important for me? Because if I can't sell you the relevance of this, then I'm just speaking to you. I'm speaking at you, over you, around you, and you're not getting the message. So why is this message important for me today? And naturally, as you sit in your chair, what are you doing right now? You're assessing me. Are you not? You should be assessing me. Is he believable? Does he believe what he's saying? Is this relevant to my life? And if not, why is he not shutting his mouth? Right? What is in this for me? What do I take away from this? Fair questions. I think we need to answer them. I really do. But when you talk about a church, 
this congregational setting, the people, the experiences, what's important? What's important? Big question. Perhaps filled with a lot of answers. Is it the minister? Is it the programs? What's important? Because people nowadays are looking for churches that suit their relevancy in their life. They really do. They're, they're looking for something. But I can tell you from experience, there is no perfect pastor. There is no perfect congregational member. There is no perfect church. We are on this side of the kingdom in which we're learning to become perfect, but sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're not. And sadly enough, we see people leaving churches because personality conflicts, they don't like the pastor, they don't like sister or brother so-and-so, so what do they do? They pick up their stuff and they leave when really what people miss about the congregational experience is this is a learning experience for us, right? If we have personality conflicts with somebody, maybe they're not our favorite person. Uh, if we don't like the pastor, maybe we should get to know him a little bit better. But God has put us here in this setting to learn how to get along, how to become agreeable, I will guarantee you that if you put 20 ministers in this room right now and ask a theological question, you would probably have about 95 to 99% agree agreeability among the pastorate. You might have some things that we don't agree on. That's okay. There's room for differences. There's room for different perspectives. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. But if we're looking for the perfect pastor in a church, you're not going to find it, right? And I only say that to acknowledge it because in our culture in the past, we have allowed this displacement or this distal relationship to occur between the pastorate and the lay membership, right? I can remember times, I witnessed this with my own eyes, and perhaps it did serve a security purpose, I, I guess, I've heard different stories, but... When Garner Ted Armstrong would walk down the aisle, he would have an entourage with him, and he would walk right by you to a specially designated area, and he was untouchable, unapproachable. Don't come up to him because you might get handcuffed, right? Now, I do understand, to be fair, that he had some death threats, and so you have to take those things kind of seriously. But I think there's an unintended consequence in the ministry when it comes to church and the messages that are, that are preached in the church, is sometimes as ministers, in preaching the right thing, I think the unintended consequences is, is we are <clears throat> a little sanctimonious, a little bit better than thou, so to speak. And I understand this to be a truth because I remember a lady, oh, this was years ago, uh, she asked me to pray with her. Of course, I, I obliged, I wanted to pray with her because she was sick. And uh, she said, I want you to pray with me because you have a, how did she put this? You have a more special relationship to God than I do. 
and it about floored me. I had to think about that for a second because it wasn't the question that was important, it was my response. That was the importance. And this is all I could think of. This is all I could come up with. I walk through the same torn veil that you do. I don't have a special access. There's no special component about me that grants me a special audience with our Father. It is the same veil that was torn at the crucifixion of Christ that I walk through or crawl through on my knees just like you do. Just like. I just don't like this distal displacement. Right? And I want to acknowledge something today about people and human beings and who we are over here in Romans chapter 7. If we think that people in the ministry, specifically when it comes, because we're talking about the perfect pastor and what people try to find in a church. There's no such thing. The Apostle Paul, I think he's one of, one of our most prominent and most respected figures in the Scriptures, number one, because he wrote almost 70% of the New Testament. But number two, there's something about the Apostle Paul that I find, I find it refreshing. It's absolutely refreshing and it rejuvenates me because he was brutally honest about himself and his nature. He really was. Over here, because the Apostle Paul, we look at him as the quintessential example of a minister in a church, right? That's what, besides Jesus Christ, I think of the Apostle Paul. I do, because he's, he's often spoke about, he's one of the most read about, and, and he contributed most of the works to it. But here, here's what he says in Romans chapter 7. Uh, let's just start, uh, let's just start in thir- uh, verse 13, because he's talking about this relationship between law and sin. And he's setting the record straight on how the law functions in our lives or what role it should have in our lives. And then it teaches us, reveals to us our nature and our character. And it also corrects us. It tells us right from wrong, puts us back on the path, but never, not one time through the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New, will you ever find the law having a role of salvation. Salvation only comes from God, not law. Law tells us how how to walk in this life, but it doesn't save us. If it did, we wouldn't have needed a Savior. We could just keep the law, right? And to this moment, we could live a perfectly sinless life, and guess what? We still would not walk into the kingdom on our own accord. Not without some blood on us, and not our own, the blood of Christ. But here, when we want to find the perfect pastor... If we're looking for it, remember the Apostle Paul, someone who we look to as the example of perfection as a pastor, right? Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through that what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, Look at this. Look what he admits. But I am carnal. Now, he could have taken perfect opportunity like some have in history and said, but I'm not like you. I'm a pastor and I'm perfect. But he didn't do that. Brutally honest. Brutally honest. It's like this guy lives in a fishbowl. There's no questions about him. That's what I appreciate about this guy. For what I am doing, I do not understand. 
For what I will do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. Sound like a perfect man? Anybody else ever said that to themselves or asked themselves that question? Why am I doing this? Right? Why do I desire to do this? You know, walk towards the kingdom, holding Christ's hand. But why do I find myself walking in the other direction oftentimes, doing the wrong thing, things I know I shouldn't do, but I do them anyways? Right? There is no difference between a pastor and a congregational member because the statement rings loud and clear, but I am carnal. Brethren, quit looking to men, if you are, for salvation other than Christ. Man will always let you down. Always. Never fails. Never fails. Our church has had a history. Marge and I were talking a little bit about this before services, and it just seems pertinent to bring up now where people leave because they have a personality conflict or because the minister was carnal or because somebody offended them or because I'm just not getting anything out of it. That's one of my pet peeves. Oh, oh, don't even get me started on that statement. I'm not getting anything out of it because I'm going to say, what are you putting into it? That's what I want to say, Right? Oftentimes, people come up to me and say, Tony, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Why can't we do this? And I said, that's a great idea. When can you start? I've got enough on my plate. When do you, when do you want to do this? Let's do it, right? And I, oh, I didn't mean me. I, you know, I didn't mean I wanted to do it. Well, that's why we're not doing it, because <laughs> no one wants to do it, right? But he's brutally honest, and he's reminding us here that the only person that we can look to for perfection is Christ. And sometimes we forget this. The only person that walked this earth in, in a mode of perfection who was absolutely impeccable, that's even hard for my mind to think of. Christ was impeccable. He was clean. When you make the right decision and you decide not to do the things that you want to do but you know you shouldn't do, does it not feel good? Does it not feel good? It feels really good. It really does. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, right? So as much as we like to acknowledge our failures, sometimes I think we need to change our perspective. Let's start looking to some of the victories we have in life, and let's get positive if we're not, right? Get positive. Make little baby steps if you have to. Make little games. Overcome this. Overcome that. Then persevere it once you do. Right? This part that I'm talking about here is we are in this together. I'm no different than you. You're no different than me. We have the same human nature. I just can't stand it when I see ministers up there acting like they're pious, holier than thou, and so distal from sin they can't even associate with it anymore. Come on. Come on. Really? Really? I mean, somehow we have this... This, this, this magic pill we take when we're ordained that somehow keeps us away from these things? Nah. People are human, brethren. That's just the way that the human nature goes. But now, he says, it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Anybody have all the answers? I don't. I don't have all the answers. I, I just want to admit that to everybody. Tony Booker does not have all the answers to life's problems. Okay? I don't. I wish I did. I have literally sat there at the bedside of people who are dying, and, and I, I've had to say to them, I wish there was a magic bullet. I wish there was. I wish I had all the answers for you. I just don't have all the answers. I don't. I wish I did, but I don't. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that is evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Sound like somebody who's perfect? And, and, and let's set the record straight here with what the Apostle Paul is getting at. This wasn't a speech impediment. This wasn't a vision problem. This was a spiritual problem he was dealing with. He had a spiritual giant in his life that he needed to slay. Anybody have those? The spiritual giant. See, giants come in many different shapes, forms, sizes. They come at you from different angles, right? This is a, a sermon I'm working on for the feast. But I can promise you this much, if I can pontificate just a little bit. There is no such thing as a 41-year-old giant. You know what I'm getting at? Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. As was Moses. As was other people. David came across the bully, a giant, who walked among the, the, the Philistines. And he stood out there and he walked daily for 40 days. Who will fight me? Right? Come on, men of Israel, fight me. And everybody cowered down. Everybody retreated and everybody sat there and did nothing. How are we going to persevere if we don't get out on the battlefield? Don't run anymore, brethren, from your fears. If you are, face the giants. Talk to your storms. How did Jesus overcome the storm? Remember that? He's out there in the storm. The waves are rolling. His disciples are going, what is going on? We're going to die. We're going to die. Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up. Lord, do you not even care what's going to happen? We're going to perish, and you don't even care. And what did he do? He stood up, and he talked to the storm. Be still. Everybody else feared. Just be still. Paul had some giants in his life, right? as did David, a real giant. Who will fight me, men of Israel? Look at me in my stature. Look how brave and big I am. I've, I've killed so many people. Is there not one warrior in Israel who will fight me? 
Now here comes old David. Well, I think, I think what was he, 17 perhaps? Teenager? David goes to Saul. He's laughed at. He goes to his brothers. Get back to the flock, David. What are you talking about? Get out of here. You're just a kid. We've got all these experienced warriors, and you're going to come out here with your shepherd's crook, and you're going to fight Goliath? You're insane. But David took up his five smooth stones, walked out on the battlefield. I get, I get goosebumps thinking about it. And in a manner of speaking, and trying to remember the story by, by my memory, and that doesn't always go right for me. Uh, but basically what he said was, God has prepared me for this day. I may not be large in stature and size, but I've slain bears and lions, and now I'm going to slay you like an uncircumcised Gentile, Goliath. And guess what? There was no 41st day for Goliath. It stopped on the 40th day. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're, you're succumbing to, whatever your giant is, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a problem, whether it's a, a specific sin, or it's a person in your life, or it's money, whatever it is, slay your giants and don't give them an inch. God's people don't need to back down. Because it's not by our might or by our strength. It's by God's that we persevere. Right? You think David actually killed Goliath? Oh, he's just a tool. Right? He's just a tool. In a manner of speaking, God was making Goliath look stupid because he used a small kid to do it. You think you're big and bad, Goliath? Guess what? Watch this. Listen to the giant hit the dust. Because they'll hit the dust every time. Every time, if we remain strong in the faith in Jesus Christ, the giants will fall. There's no more beautiful sound than a giant hitting the ground. Beautiful, beautiful sound. What's your giant? We all got them. Doubt. Could it be doubt? Fears? Anxieties? Alcohol, drugs, pornography, what is it? Brother, we live in this, I don't need to tell you this, we live in a society where we have everything at our fingertips. It is so easily accessible, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But he continues here, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. What is Paul doing here? He's making a connection to the congregation by acknowledging I'm just like you, folks. Does that make sense? I'm just like you. So if we're going to try to find a church with a perfect pastor, a perfect layman, lay member, a perfect sermon, let me know when you find it. Because I want to be there. I'm still looking for the perfect sermon. I've never heard it. Right? I've never heard it. I've heard some real good ones. But I've never heard the perfect one yet. Never have. Never given one either. So, with this acknowledgement, I, I did this because 
I want you to know that I'm not speaking at you. Right? I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to me. I just happen to have an audience like I'm talking to myself. Right? I'm just talking to myself and you're sitting here. We're of one, one mind, one likeness. Here we are together acknowledging that we're trying to recover from this life of sin. But there are some important things about the congregational setting that we have to consider. Right? So once we acknowledge this, and we don't have this distal relationship to each other, if there is one, and now we can assimilate or associate, commiserate, sympathize, empathize with each other, now we can have a conversation. That's just the way I feel about it. Now we can talk. My wife has this book at home. I laugh at it all the time because it's so true. It says, let's have coffee, then we can talk. Right? Everybody wants to talk after. Don't talk to me in the morning before coffee. Oof. Wow. I walk into work all the time, and uh, my boss, she's a, she's a lady that owns a country, uh, company. She's a Christian lady. And she's this little Korean lady about this big. And she says in that accent, how you doing today, Tony? I say, Joyce, you know, I'm a pastor. Do you want me to lie to you or do you want me to tell you the truth? Because I haven't had enough coffee today. And she says, oh, you'll be okay. But we, we laugh about it. I'm just not a morning person. But now that we can associate on the same level, I want to start getting to what's the most important thing about church. So this is my actual predicate right here. I said all this just to bring myself to say that, right? In John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we're going to read verse 19 through 26, but there's a story, a conversation that I can remember. And I'm going back years. I don't know if I've told this story here or not. But years ago, <clears throat> I find myself a, I was a young manager in a warehouse setting. And I, it had to have been about 10 years ago because I was either ordained or getting ready to be ordained. I can't really remember. I was somewhere along that time frame. I do remember that much. Because people at work or people in general, when they find out that you're a pastor, they want to talk about religion, right? They want to challenge you. They want to ask questions. They want to try to put you in, this, in a corner, try to get you to slip up, you know, because they want to challenge you on what you believe. But this time, there was just a friendly conversation uh, between a couple employees, uh, and I, I was a part of the discussion. It's probably my best missionary experience I've ever had because I just kept my mouth shut. My best missionary experience is when I just buttoned my lip and listened, right? Because I tend to say too much sometimes. But as they're talking, they're, they're, they're talking about this new church that they're going to, and that they're going to leave their old church, and the reasons why they wanted to go to this new church, what was important to them in this congregation, right? So, as the, uh, the conversation progressed, they were saying things like, um, uh, it was laid back. I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't think that the Church of God culture is so uptight that people don't feel like they're relaxed when they come in here. I, I think we can see people crossing their legs and, you know, drinking coffee. I think we're pretty laid back, Right? No one's going to meet you at the door and say, are you keeping the Sabbath right with a club in there? No one's going to do that. I mean, we're not, we're not like that, right? It's laid back. I mentioned that several times. Uh, it had lots of music. 
lots of band music. The sermons were only 15 minutes long. <laughs> right? That old 60-minute sermon. Right. Like I see people are just glazing over hearing about it, right? I heard nothing about doctrine. I heard nothing about the emphasis or the importance being placed on what was taught, what was believed. And I wanted to say, so if you don't focus on doctrine, you're telling me you don't really know what you believe? Because I'm going to go somewhere. I want to know who they are, what they believe in, and what the expectations are. I don't care about the band music. I don't care about kids of Paloozas. I don't care about that. If someone wants to organize it, go right ahead and do it. I don't want to do it, right? I just don't like snake oil salesmen that get people in through gimmicks and tricks. I don't. I drove by a church on my routes the other day uh, while I was at work, and I, drove, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It said, join our church, free car care. <laughs> what? Free car care? I mean, are you that desperate? Free car care? I mean, anything just to drum up business. And now churches are using business tactics to get people to come in. I, can't, I just, it's just, I, I just don't understand it. I don't get it. But here, in these set of passages here, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has a very interesting encounter with this woman at the well. You know the story well, so to speak. He says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So they don't exactly agree on theology here, right? And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Ooh, that had to hurt. Jesus was not a man who minced words. If you ever think Jesus was this long-haired, sissified guy that walked around saying nice things to people all the time, go back to Matthew 23 and review it. Right? You are tombs. Whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. He wasn't kind all the time to people. He put them back in their place. But here he's saying, you don't know, even know what you worship. But the hour is coming now, now is rather, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. What's important to you in the church? Is it the programs? I would say no, because we don't have programs like that here. Maybe it's just a generic question. Is it the band music? Now look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not down on contemporary music. I kind of like it myself. Oftentimes I'll pop in a CD from a contemporary Christian band called Mercy Me and I'll sing it all the way up here wherever I'm going. I love it. I'm not against it. However, when you start having these kind of things displace the message, I've got a big problem with that. I just, that's not something that's doable for me. I can't do that. The truth has to be the foundation of what we stand on. And if we have the other things, that's fine. But the churches nowadays have... 
because I don't want to say this in, in, a, in a condemning, con, 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 condemning way, but the churches nowadays have replaced the truth for emotionalism and entertainment. That's what's happened. There is a difference between worship and emotionalism. There's a big deal. I'm not saying we can't be emotional, but when emotionalism is the focus and the message is now being de-emphasized, I'll tell you what, the Christian, um, uh, the world of Christianity out there is learning something that I think that, that we are starting, they're remembering something that I think that we're starting to forget. And that is the 60-minute sermon is vital when we're speaking truth and doctrine because that is the foundation of who we are, what we believe, it's where the learning occurs, and there are actually Sunday-keeping churches out there that are trying to get back the 60-minute sermons because guess what? Hardly anybody knows how to do them anymore by their own admission. And I think sometimes we, we devalue the 60-minute sermon because we're all busy or whatever the case may be, but the bottom line is what we do up here is vital. It has to be. The teaching of the doctrines, in my, from my perspective, is the most vital component that we can have in a church. Otherwise, we lose our identity. And if we don't think that's possible, and we think that we have this immunity to it because we are God's people, let's look at worldwide. Right? What happens when we start watering down doctrine? Remember one of the first things that happened in Worldwide? Guess what, guys? 1 Timothy chapter 4 says we can have a lobster boil today. Right? Oh, 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 oh. And the Sabbath thing? No. Now we're not doing that. If you guys want to keep the Sabbath, because Romans chapter 14 says we're not supposed to judge one another, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you can keep it on Saturday if you want. We're going to go ahead and keep it on Sunday. But again, what won out in the end? The way I understand it, the worldwide is not even called worldwide anymore. It's called something completely different. And people that keep the Sabbath day aren't in that organization. Because in the doctrines that are taught is our identity. As long, and it's a good thing to do as long as the doctrines reflect the words of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't bad doctrines out there. I've heard a lot of bad doctrines. There's a doctrine out there now, the sea of glass theory that's being taught. Where when Jesus Christ returns, the saint, they say the saints are going to be resurrected, taken up to the sea of glass, where we'll stay there for three and a half years, not returning to, the, to, the, to uh, Mount, Mount of Olives or wherever we're going, um, Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, it's going to take three and a half years for us to return. Nothing more than a reinvention of a mid-tribulation rapture theory. It's just a way to sneak it in. It really is. It's bad doctrine. It really is bad doctrine. But there, um, there's a book that I think anybody who speaks, anybody who's planning on becoming a minister, anybody who knows someone that's going to become a minister has to have in their library and their arsenal. It has to be there. It's by H. Grady Davis called uh, Design for Preaching. Bill made me read it <laughs> when I was in MAP. He said, you're going to have to read this book. You have to read this book. And basically what H. Grady Davis says, he talks about sermonic design. Function, format, 
design, because really what is a sermon? If you think about a sermon by way of analogy, it is a living, breathing organism like a tree. You got the predicate, which is the trunk, and everything else that you say has to lead back to that trunk or it just does not make any sense, right? And let's not forget relevance. It has to have relevance too. But our culture, I think, I think sometimes we step onto a slippery slope. A slippery slope. And I'm going to be real careful with my words. I'm going to be a little bit diplomatic here. But in our, in our culture, there is a push to lessen the sermon time to a half hour, 40 minutes, 25 minutes. That is a dangerous slope to be standing on as far as I'm concerned because there are so many consequences that come from that I don't have enough time to even begin to explain all of them. I really don't. And that's what H. Grady, uh, H. Grady Davis says in his book. He says, basically, I'm going I'm to paraphrase, the, the men that can stand up and give a 60-minute sermon are going extinct. They've been replaced with emotionalism, bands, entertainment, all these other things. And it's dangerous, and this is what H. Grady Davis wrote the book for, was to get that knowledge back. We have to retain that knowledge. If we don't, we're going to lose it. We're going to lose it. It's not easy to stand up for 60 minutes and talk. It's not easy to listen to sometimes either. <laughs> Depends what the, what the message is, right? But we've got to be careful with that. So the most important thing to me is the doctrines. It's the doctrines. So let me ask you, is doctrine important to you? And if it is, how much? Priceless. I think the doctrines are priceless. I really do. I think it's a little bit sad that we don't have the doctrine of our national identity in our statement of beliefs. I'd like to see that maybe one day, but it's neither here nor there. But over here, we're told to do something. Over here in 1 Thessalonians, because we're talking about the importance of this thing called doctrine. 1 Thessalonians 5. And I know that you're very aware of this specific sentence that I'm going to read, but I think I need to read it today because it's, it's very important to what I'm talking about. In verse 21 of 1 Thessalonians 5, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. If I say something that you don't quite understand or I fail to qualify a statement, which I oftentimes do, it's your responsibility to ask me. Don't go away mad. Ask me and I'll qualify it, right? Oftentimes I see people that people rush out. I can't believe he said that. I know that was about me. Uh, he got to been talking about. I've, people have actually accused me before of calling Bill or Wayne or one of the local guys to give a sermon on a specific topic that someone's struggling with, and let them have it. They're sitting right. They'll be sitting right in the front row. I would never do something like that, right? When I can walk on water, then maybe. But I can't walk on water yet. You know, we make fun of Peter, but guess what? He took a couple steps. That's what I often say. But in the backdrop, 
of 1 Thessalonians 5, we have, to, we have to reach out to this in a historical context because there's something behind this that I think is vital. In this context is something that was going on during the days of Timothy that was happening and people were actually getting robbed through their monetary system. And let me just read here because there's a lot here. The word to test or to prove all things means to test, to try, or examine as in a precious metal or artwork, real or counterfeit. Right? There's a lot of counterfeit doctrines out there, brethren. And there really are. And there's a lot of people out there that will accept a counterfeit as long as it fulfills desires. So that's why we have to preach the truth, right? Sound doctrine seems as though it's taken a second. I don't want to read what the rest of the author says here, but in the ancient world, there was no banking system as we know it today, no paper money, all money was made from metal, heated until liquid, poured into molds, and allowed to cool. When the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the uneven edges. They had to make it look nice, right? So they had to make these coins the perfect weight, the perfect shape, the perfect size. That's the way that was a slow process, but that's how they did it. The coins were completely soft, and of course, many people shaved them closely. What does that mean? It means that they were actually taking more metal off than what they should and passing it on as it had more value than what it did. That's what they were doing. In one century, more than 80 laws were passed in Athens to stop the practice of shaving down the coins then in circulation, but some money changers were men of integrity who would accept no counterfeit money. Brethren, we need to be people of God with integrity so we don't accept counterfeit doctrines. That's why doctrine is important, right? There were men of honor who put only generally full-weighted money into circulation. Such men were called dokimos or approved. And that's exactly what the apostle is talking about here because they had to closely authenticate. How would you feel? How would you feel if you, you, you bought a piece of Picasso artwork? And your friend came over who was an art specialist, a collector, and looked at it and said, how much did you pay for this? Oh, I paid a couple hundred thousand dollars. Why? Well, it's probably worth about 25 because it's a counterfeit. How disappointed would you be? Well, how do you suppose people will feel when they find out that their pastors are passing along counterfeit doctrines? How disappointed are they going to be? Because no one can convince me that pastors that are teaching Sunday, Easter, Christmas, Halloween can't read between the lines and understand that that's not in the scriptures. That's not in there. There's a, there's a minister who is renting the facilities in Middletown, a Sunday minister right now, who has his congregation come in, the Middletown congregation, and they, they give funds to us to rent our building all the time. And guess what he used to be? A Sabbath keeper. He used to preach the Sabbath day. Can anybody guess why he doesn't anymore? It doesn't bring enough people into attendance. So you're going to pass along something you know to be counterfeit for attendance? Numbers. These number games that we play, right? Numbers are down. When has God ever cared about numbers? 
Has God ever cared about numbers? I don't care what anybody says. The numbers down in Land Between the Lakes, Kentucky, they were lower, but I take issue with people that say it was a dead feast site because the people looked awful alive to me, and there's a lot going on there. I, take, I, just, I just don't like to hear that. It's a judgment that doesn't need to be made. It was not a dead feast site. So we have to prove all these things or else we'll be accepting a, a counterfeit. And as to the issue of why this is important, let's get into that now. Let's, let's talk about that. Because there's one thing that motivates me as a minister of Jesus Christ, and it is actually my SPS as a minister. And it's found in Titus chapter 1. It has to do with these, these qualifications and perhaps even more importantly, the function of the ministry. A lot of times we have these questions about what's the difference between the diaconate and the ministry? What are the functions? How are they different? Because the qualifications are almost identical. They really are. If you read the qualifications of a deacon and the qualifications of the minister, you won't find much deviation from there. But there is, however, a vital function which takes the minister off into a different role. And that's, that's what's important here. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dis, uh, dissipation or insubordination, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble if that's the qualification. My kids are always in insubordinate. <laughs> it's part of growing up. Right? And if this word blameless really meant blameless, then the Apostle Paul wouldn't have wrote what he wrote and acknowledged what he acknowledged. The word blameless simply means don't let sin reign in your life. In other words, don't let it control you. It doesn't say that you're perfect. It doesn't give you an angle to act pious. It just says do not let have sin have dominion over you. Right? That's what it means. That's qualification. And that, by the way, runs concurrent in the Old Testament as well with, with the priesthood. Uh, for a bishop must be blameless... As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. How would you like to come into a church where the pastor was like that? A violent pastor? That wouldn't be any fun. I'd, I'd, I'd be leaving as soon as he came in the door. Holding fast the faithful word. Now, here we go. I don't have time to go to it, but review Acts chapter 6, what the deacon's role are, and now we get specifically... Uh, geared towards understanding what the minister's role is. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and to, to convict those who contradict. Right? For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcisions whose mouth must be stopped who subvert the whole household's teaching the things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Doesn't it sound a lot like what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5 for dishonest gain? A counterfeit. My job, my role as a pastor is to, is to do my best to make sure a counterfeit is not passed along as the real deal. To defend the doctrine, to teach the doctrine. I can't be worried about kids of Paloozas, bake sales. That's not my function. 
That's not my role. My role is to make sure that the doctrine is being taught soundly and it's maintained. That, that's my role. So why is this important to me? Let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, just a page over here. I'm going to wrap this up here in the next couple of minutes because I want to answer why. In verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says to this young evangelist Timothy, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now oftentimes we, we read these words. We just read the words, right? But we don't really get what he's saying here because we're not there listening to it. We're reading it. So we're only getting about 5% of the conversation here when we read. Because 95% of our communication is nonverbal. So we're only getting 5%. What he really means here, and I, I did this illustration in Columbus and I about killed a few people with heart attacks, so I won't do it here. But it's like someone takes their fist and pounds it on a desk and said, listen to me, Timothy. I'm not playing around with my words. This is, an, I'm emphatically telling you and I'm commanding you, don't deviate from this and don't let me hear that you are. That's basically what he's saying here. I don't want to hear any words that you're deviating from what I'm telling you. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come. It's like a prophet. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why? Because they've gotten away from the important things. Just drumming up business, trying to get people in the chairs, not worried about the truth. And when that goes to the wayside, anything's able to come in. Lobster boils, Sunday, whatever you want, just keep it. But according to their own desire, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, but you be watchful. In all your things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I can't think of any other topic that makes people's ears itch more than that of prophecy. Right? Like the sea of glass I told you about. Everybody has a take on prophecy. Everybody has something to say. Everybody has the end with God. There's one guy out there that teaches that God's going to tap him on the shoulder and he's going to be the only one that leads us to Petra in our culture. I've even heard that a minister who is no longer around, who has passed away now, before he died, said doctrine is no longer important. From our culture, doctrine is no longer important. Do we understand the implications of that? I don't think sometimes we do. We don't understand the unintended consequences when we say that. But over here in 1 Timothy, here's the importance. This is why I'm motivated to speak about these things. Okay, and uh, We don't have time to read the whole thing because I've got to close this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 10, for this end, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach 
because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Here we go again. We're gonna, he's going to command what we teach here. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and impurity. Now, am I saying that doctrine is everything? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it is foundational. But we don't deviate from it. It's not everything. I understand that. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to kids of Palooza's bake sales, band music, right? That's not what he says, is it? What does he say? Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. That's my function. Doctrine is my function. It's what I'm supposed to do, okay? Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself. Now here's, here's the answer. Herein lies the answer to why this is important. This is it right here. So if, if you think I'm wrong about this, I'm going to let the Apostle Paul qualify it for me. Okay? Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So, with that being said, let me re-ask the question. What's important to you? When it comes to life, there are a lot of things that are important to us. But how and where and why we choose to worship our Creator should not take a back seat to those other things. How important is doctrine? Well, doctrine has a very good way of scratching the itchy ear. It has a very good way of getting us back on track when we're off track. It has a very good function in that it teaches us who God is, what He's doing, our relevance in this world, the relevance of our relationship with our Creator, and brethren, I'm telling you, if we lose sight of the important thing and we replace it with counterfeits or emotionalism, we will lose our doctrines. We shouldn't shun the 60-minute sermons anymore. Go back and read Isaiah 30. It talks about there's going to be a time when your teachers are no longer placed into a corner. God places a great deal of emphasis on the teaching. So how important is doctrine to you? I'll let you answer that question yourself.